So this morning we conclude our series through the letters from Jesus to the seven churches in Revelation. All right, the, the vision that became the book of Revelation was given to the apostle John. He was the one apostle who was not martyred, who died of natural causes, but it wasn't all roses in John's life, right? Because late in his life, he was uh, living in this Isle of Patmos. If you want to throw, Dan, that, that map up that we've gone to every week. So that bottom left, so this is Turkey. That's what the big T is, 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 is the zoomed in version of Turkey. That, bo- that star in the bottom left is the Isle of Patmos. That's where John, for his faith, had been exiled as part of the Roman Empire. And I, I can only imagine that as, as Jesus was giving him this vision, that he almost, he could look out or, or kind of look to the northeast and see, imagine where these cities were that he was writing to. And we started at Ephesus, made our way north, and now we've been coming back down south to uh, Laodicea. And so over the last uh, two months, we've been working our way through these cities and what Jesus had to say to them, the compliments and the criticisms. Each letter had its own context where Jesus was addressing a very specific issue in those churches, but the letters were not meant to be just to the original participants of that city. The tagline that we've read every single week at the end of the letter says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Note it's churches, plural, not church, singular. These are meant to be open letters, that all seven cities were, were instructed to read and learn from one another's experience. And so I think taking that, I think we could take that into our modern age and say, are there windows to our own personal church life, or corporate church life might be a better descriptor, that we can learn from these, even though we've been separated by 2,000 years. So the final letter, the final city we're going to look at is probably the most recognizable, the words of Jesus to the church of Laodicea. They've often been quoted to describe different elements of the Christian life. You have the disgust by which Jesus calls them lukewarm and vividly portrays, you know, regurgitating, spitting them out of his mouth. You have the image of Jesus, you know, knocking at the door, requesting entry. It's usually paired with uh, access to our hearts in the places that I've heard it. So we're going to take a closer look at that with some of these familiar images and see what Jesus has to say to the church of Laodicea. So if you want to open up your Bibles, uh, Bible apps, Revelation chapter 3, we're going to pick up at verse 14. So the last of the letters. So I'm going to, if you want to follow along with me, I'm going to start at 14 to 22. This is what it says. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, 
I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant with him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus begins, as he's done with all the letters, by identifying himself with a few characteristics. And so in this particular letter, he calls himself the Amen. Now, we don't usually think of the Amen as a title. Instead, this is something that we have a tendency to, you know, tack on at the end of our prayers. But Amen is a term of confirmation. It is assurance of promises, right? We don't say amen at the end of our prayers with a timid hope that, you know, maybe if we just say the correct words or find the right formula, the Lord is going to listen to our requests. Amen is a bold declaration that we know the character of God and that while we may not know what he's going to do or how he's going to act, we know that it is for our good and it is for his glory. 2 Corinthians 1.20, Paul writes, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Amen is like saying, so be it. For all of you Trekkies out there, this is kind of like Captain Picard's famous slogan, make it so. Jesus often used amen as part of his teaching. Not usually at the end, but the beginning. So for an example, this is a text we're going to look at a little bit more next week. John 3.3, 3, when talking to Nicodemus about faith, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There are multiple times in the Gospel of John where we see this same formula, truly, truly, in Greek. It would be like him saying, Amen, Amen. That's literally what he says in Greek. Amen, Amen, and then makes his statement. It's confirmation. It's of his faithfulness, of his true character. The same descriptors that he uses next in the passage. Lastly, he states that he is the beginning of God's creation. It's a fascinating word. Arche is the Greek word. It often is translated as ruler, but it also can be translated as beginning or source. And so in this case, I think it's meant to be understood that he is the source of creation. Clearly not beginning like first thing that was created. That would get us into theological pickles, right? The the early church creeds were very uh, intentional that Jesus was not uh, a created being. He's not like the first part of creation. But I think it means that it's the source, that it was through Jesus that the entire cosmos, the universe, came into being. We saw, see this in the first chapter of Genesis, The formula in Genesis chapter 1 is God said, he spoke, and it was. The world came into being through his word. So I don't think it is a coincidence that Scripture calls Jesus the word of God. The avenue by which God's will is taken in the abstract and made concrete with creation. And because of that, because Jesus is the beginning, the source of creation, it means that he also has authority over it. He is the ruler to it. That's how Jesus identifies himself in this letter. Now, next in our framework over the last two months, we've looked at the commendations, right? What are the, the nice things, the positive things that Jesus has to say for the church? And unfortunately, if we read through this in Laodicea, there isn't anything. Jesus skips over the compliments and goes right to criticisms. And to understand the full force of Jesus' words, I'm going to give you some historical background because it's really important for Laodicea. 
because there's kind of two branches of comments. First, this comment about being lukewarm is, is very culturally relevant to them. And secondly, when he describes them as being poor, blind, and naked. So let's start with the lukewarm comment. Right In the time that this was written, uh, the, the, it was common dislike in the city of Laodicea for their water supply. Right? They didn't have any naturally occurring water, and so they had to pipe it in from other communities using aqueducts. And their water, as a result, was pretty gross, and no one in the community really liked it. You had to drink it to live, but they didn't really like it that much. It was filled with sediments, and beyond that, it was also very it was lukewarm. Now, it's important to understand, because Jesus calls them lukewarm, kind of playing on this. And so it's important to understand what Jesus' indictment means when he calls their water lukewarm, or calls them lukewarm. Because I've heard on numerous occasions this used as a metaphor for faith where hot is good and cold is bad. And this is a common language that's used in the evangelical church where phrases like being on fire for the Lord describe our faith in a positive way. Even in the realm of science, right, warm means that there's lots of activity and coldness is often used as a synonym for lethargy, slowness. So it's evident from the text that that's not what Jesus is hinting at. He's not placing a value that warm or hot is good and cold is bad because his problem is that they're lukewarm. He wishes that they would be either hot or cold. Right? If hot was a strong faith and cold was a stagnant faith, then Jesus wouldn't be saying, well, it'd be okay if you were cold. His issue isn't that they're muddling around somewhere in that extreme between you know, being on fire for him and completely stagnant, but it's actually that their faith is functionally useless. That's what he's advocating or arguing against. Because to fill the city's water needs, aqueducts would bring cold water from the mountains, and it would bring hot water from the springs in Hierapolis, which was about, Hierapolis was about six miles away. So by the time that the hot and cold water got there, it wasn't hot and cold anymore. But each of them individually would have been useful in this age. Hot water was desirable for bathing. It was desirable for healing certain health ailments. Before the invention of a hot water tank, you had to manually heat your water anytime you wanted a warm bath. Maybe if you were lucky, you lived in a place like Hierapolis that had naturally occurring hot springs. But normally, you got to get it from somewhere else or heat it yourself. Cold water was desirable for drinking water. But by the time the water made its way to the city of Laodicea, it was tepid, room temperature, lukewarm. Maybe you've experienced something like this. So, for example, Monday, uh, I played some pickup soccer with some uh, kids and adults from the Woodland Hills area, and it was like nearly 90, 40 degrees. It was not 40 degrees, maybe 40 degrees Celsius. I can't do that conversion in my head right now, but 90 degrees Fahrenheit. And near the end of our time, I, we stopped to take a water break. I took this long swig from my Nalgene, and it was disgusting, right? Because my water had been sitting out for an hour and a half in, in like, direct sunlight. I should have, like, put it under something to shade it a little bit. But it was not pleasant. To, I drank it because I needed it, but it was not pleasant to drink at all. Jesus wants Christians who are helpful, who are useful for the kingdom of God. But just like their water system Jesus takes a drink, he's desiring cool, refreshing water, but instead what he gets is not good for anything. So he spits it out. 
So this concept of being lukewarm, this criticism, has less to do with how energized they are in their faith and more to do with their functional uselessness for the kingdom of God. Jesus says you're unhelpful for the work that he's trying to do in the world. So here first, he's using a metaphor with them to kind of help them understand where they're deficient, where there's agreement, because the city, as I said, doesn't like its water supply, and Jesus is capitalizing on that to make its point. But then he goes for the jugular. Laodicea was a wealthy city. It had great resources, and Jesus hits them where it would hurt. He challenges their self-sufficiency. Laodicea had a very well-developed banking center that had made the city prosperous. They considered themselves wealthy, but Jesus calls them poor. Right? They may have wealth, tangible, physical wealth for themselves, but Jesus says you should buy this precious, pure gold from him so that they can be rich. The city was famous for its textiles. They exported cloth and carpets woven of their famous black Laodicean wool. They were known for manufacturing clothing, but Jesus calls them naked. He offers them white clothing to cover their nakedness, and I don't think it's coincidental that he calls it white because it's in contrast to, again, the black wool that was famous in that area. The city boasted a strong medical center. People would travel to this, in this region to find relief to find healing for ailments. So they brought medical healing to many in the region, but Jesus calls them blind. It would have been incredulous for them to think that I need to get eye salve. I need to get like this this stuff to put on my eyes so that I can see from Jesus. I think this is the main point of the letter. You think you're okay, but you're actually not. The Laodicean Christians thought that they were healthy and wealthy, but Jesus reveals what is true, what is hidden from their sight. There may be these external physical, external physical signs of their prosperity, but Jesus says this is worthless. It doesn't amount to anything. Now before Jesus gives his final picture of indictment, there is a, a bit of a reprieve. In verse 19, he acknowledges his rebuke. He validates the painful emotions that come from someone you love saying some harsh things, some difficult things to you. And he reminds them of his motivation, his heart motivation behind them is love. His goal is not selfish ambition, but it's their good. If they would just understand his heart, they would quickly, zealously turn from their ways and seek him out again. And then we get to verse 20. The next verse is one that I've seen many times uh, used in gospel tracts. I, I was spent a lot of time with Campus, Campus Crusade for Christ, now called Crew, in college. And, you know, there are four spiritual laws. This was one of the passages, right? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And they imagine Jesus knocking at the door of our heart, waiting for us to invite him in so that he can dwell within us. It's a call for intimacy, that Jesus wants to share a meal But unfortunately, this passage has been boiled down into individual salvation, right? If we just would open the door to our hearts and let Jesus in, that we can be part of his people. We can experience salvation. But that's not actually what's being pictured in our passage. 
Right? There's actually no mention of the heart being the avenue, the, the entryway that Jesus is trying to get access to in the passage. Instead, what I think Jesus wants the church of Laodicea to realize is that in their self-sufficiency, they have shut out Jesus from their lives. They're throwing, he's kind of making a metaphor, they are throwing a grand feast and they're inviting everyone in town, but Jesus somehow has been left outside. And this is playing on the thread of cultural hospitality. Inviting others into your home, even a stranger, especially a stranger, was like the baseline for hospitality in that age. But the recipients of the letter could not even bring themselves to extend that same hospitality to Jesus. He is worse off than a stranger. Rounding out the passage, Jesus gives words of comfort that to the one who overcomes will sit with him on his throne, um, that those who hold fast to the faith will have the right to reign with Jesus in the coming kingdom. Uh, This is the same language we saw at the end of chapter 2 with the church of Thyatira, a promise of partnership, presence with Jesus in the age to come. So I want to take the rest of our time to try to process and see how does this fit in our lives. It's kind of an overview of what the passage means, but what does that mean to us? How do we take these words and see how they fit with a 21st century mindset? And I've got two elements that I want to drill down in a bit more. The first is the rebuke of Jesus in verse 19. And the truth is a rebuke does not feel good. Sarah and I have been married for almost 18 years. And even still, when one of us goofs and is called out by the other, it doesn't feel good. Even with the person that I love most in the world, it's so natural to put up those defense mechanisms. I don't know about you, but even with people I care about, I have a tendency to get a little snippy when my deficiency is called out. Now take that. How does that posture translate when we relate to God? How do you feel about a God who might speak harshly to you? We we often imagine God as gentle, lovingly, you know, always speaking in soft, soothing tones towards us. And there are times that that happens. But this passage reminds us that there may be times when we are out of line. That Jesus needs to give us that wake-up call. And when we experience those harsh words from the Lord, it might feel like death. It might feel like the rug is being swept out from under us. And as a result, we try to fight tooth and nail to prove to ourselves, to prove to others that we're not as bad as we seem in that moment. We make excuses. We rationalize our sin. We blame others. Or maybe we just harden our hearts to any criticism. It's important in those moments when we feel those those harsh words to remember the second half of the verse, that any criticism that comes from God is out of an extension of his love for us. Think about it like parenting. Okay. You might, you know, let's say you take your kids to a playground. You see a kid acting like a fool. But generally speaking, as long as, like, the child isn't causing harm to anyone, like, you're going to turn a blind eye to their behavior. Probably what's more likely is you're going to silently judge that child's parents. Right? But you're not going to get involved. I, I've got a friend, a good friend of mine, who always uses the Polish proverb, right? Not my circus, not my monkeys. It's not my monkey that's dealing with this, so I'm not going to get involved. 
But what happens if it is your child who starts to misbehave, right? Johnny pushes poor Sally off the swing. Well, you know what? In the blink of an eye, you're there reading Johnny his rights, instructing him on how to share, how to use kind touches. Because your discipline of Johnny, I don't know, I guess we do have a John. Sorry, John. Your discipline of, of Johnny is directly proportional to the affection that you feel for him. When Jesus takes us to task over something, even if, it, even if it is that just gentle tug of that Holy Spirit in your gut that says, man, I did the wrong thing. Don't take it as judgment. It's not God towering over you with his you know, arms crossed, tapping his foot, impatiently just waiting for you to get it right. That is not the posture that Jesus has towards us. And oftentimes when he speaks harshly, when he says things that are hard for us to, to, to process, that's what we imagine. Sarah often uses the language of her view when she was growing up, that she thought Jesus or God was like a cosmic cop. It was a speed trap just waiting for her to screw up so that he could bring down the hammer. That is not the posture that God has for us. When he speaks, when he disciplines us, it's meant to remind us because of his love of which way is best. Because oftentimes, usually that's what we're doing is instead of going his way, we're going our own way. And that often doesn't lead the way to the place that we want it to go. His way over ours. I think this is the third time I've said it in this phrase in this series, but the role of the preacher, the role of the biblical text often is to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted. We sang this morning about, you know, Jesus satisfies us, right? That there is a place we can go when we're hungry, when we're thirsty, when we feel depleted. That is us being comforted in our affliction, in our deficiency. But there are times that we need to be afflicted because we're comfortable. Jesus' harsh words in this passage came to those who believed themselves to be self-satisfied or self-sufficient. They thought they had their act together, and Jesus had to reveal the reality that showed that their perspective of themselves was actually inaccurate. Now, this is one of those letters where there, I would hope, would be some aha moments for us where even though we're separated by 2,000 years, that we see some alignments with how they live their lives and how we live our lives. And that perhaps we ought to receive some of that affliction, that conviction that perhaps we've missed something in our life of faith. The Christians of Laodicea reaped the benefit of the city's physical wealth. But Jesus said that they were spiritually impoverished. I think that's a pretty accurate descriptor of 21st century American Christianity. We live in an age where we think that we're okay. For the most part, for the most part, we don't have to worry where our next meal is going to come from. We might have steady jobs that pay the bills. Or maybe we've successfully invested our resources and we can live comfortably in retirement. All the while, we go through these motions thinking that we are the cause of our own success because we worked hard, because we made good decisions. And those statements may be true. Maybe we did work hard. Maybe we did make good decisions. But in this position, where is God? Right? He's usually something we tack on at the end. We 
we'll spend time in worship, we'll spend time in prayer, reading the scriptures, if we've got time left over at the end of our day. We'll give to churches or other ministries when there's excess in our budget, after all the bills are paid. We live in comfort, and God is only there to fill in the gaps, particularly when we're between seasons of comfort. Maybe we get fired from a job, or we get dumped by a boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe we're given a terminal diagnosis. Something happens in our life where there's some tumultuousness, right? We experience something that shakes us up, and we recognize that we weren't as stable as we actually thought we were. So what do we do in those times? We go to God. And those are some of the most meaningful, emotionally rich connections with Him, where He sees us through whatever season of life we're in. But you know what happens then? Life restabilizes. God gets put back up on that shelf just to collect dust until our next crisis. The words of Jesus to Laodicea, I think words are, t- are the same words to us as well, that we think that we're rich, but we're poor in spirit. We think that we are lavishly dressed but we're spiritually exposed in nakedness. Our bodies might be externally healthy, but Jesus reminds us that we are blind to the work of God in our midst. I don't, I don't know if any of this describes you. Right? Trying to, how do we diagnose this attitude in our faith? And I think the primary question that I was kicking around this week is do you have a sense of your desperate need before God. Because if I think that I'm okay, I'm not in a place of desperation. And I'm not saying that we should manufacture, you know, crises to to get this. But if we think we're okay, Jesus is just kind of like the icing on the cake. But what the scriptures remind us is that apart from Jesus, I can do nothing. I think I have agency. I think I have control of my own destiny, but that is an illusion. I'm at the mercy of God. And I need to be inviting him into that process, inviting him into my decision-making, into every element of life, because there's not a square inch in creation that Christ doesn't look at and say, I've got ownership of that. That's mine. Now, you might observe this in your practice of spiritual disciplines. When we feel confident in self, we're less likely to pray. Why, pray. why pray to God when I can act just fine and control my own circumstances? Or we've got these routine devotionals that are just dry. We feel like we're just reading words on a page. That's usually indicative of this kind of breakdown in emotional connection with God. Maybe it's about how we care about our neighbors. Richard Stern, CEO of World Vision, put it this way. He said, if the book of Revelation were written today, and there was a letter to the church in America, I think it would decry the fact that our materialism and wealth have deafened our ears and blinded our eyes to the cause of the poor. One of the things that we talk about in this church a lot is what is the place of race in our society? Because the majority of us who are white have a certain experience. And so it's easy for us just to go down and say, that's my experience. That is what reality is defined by. But there's a lot of people 
whether it be about race, whether it be about substance abuse, whether it be about anything, that have different experiences than ours, and we ought to have a compassionate and empathetic heart to listen and hear what they have to say, to acknowledge that perhaps our perspective of reality is skewed and is missing something. And in those times when we experience that, I really think it's important to have God fill in those cracks and to be a part of that process, to unveil, to reveal. The the word, this is often called, I'm going way off my topic now, but this is often called the apocryphal, right? This is an, or not apocryphal, that's in between the the Old and New Testament. Apocalyptic, right? And we often think apocalyptic means that it's like, tragic or or like this big thing, but what apocalyptic literally means is is revealed. It's pulling back the veil. And so in some ways, we need God's apocalyptic vision in our lives that what we see may not be what is true. That's what Jesus was doing to the Laodiceans. He was revealing. He was providing an apocalypse to reveal what was true behind the scenes in the spiritual realm. So if, we, if that describes you, if we find ourselves in that moment, the solution is the same as the action items that he gave to the Laodiceans. Be zealous and repent. That's what he told them to do. We need to own our shortcomings and turn away from them. Go before God. Take some time. And this, these will be our reflection questions, which we're going to get to in just a moment. Go before God and ask his forgiveness. Not just like forcing ourselves to be better, but inviting him to reinvigorate the process of the Spirit. What better place to start that than on the, you know, the anniversary of Pentecost? To, To reinvigorate that Spirit in our hearts. Because the truth is our hearts are broken. Our hearts are in need of repair. You or I cannot perform open heart surgery on ourselves. We need someone else. We can't fix ourselves by brute force. We can't fix ourselves by behavioral modification alone. We need God to come in and breathe new life into us. So here's some questions for us. So first, think about it. I'll post these on Facebook. Identify one area of life. What's an area of life that you are relying on your own abilities that you haven't invited Jesus to be a part of? Because he wants it all. He doesn't want to compartmentalize that. So identify that. Secondly, is there space, this gets back to the rebuke of Jesus, is there space in your view of God to allow for harsh words like we see Jesus giving to the Christians of Laodicea? Why or why not? Dwell on that a little bit. What, is the, what would that mean for, to, to, to believe in a God who may speak harshly to you? And then lastly, brain, brainstorm a few of your deficiencies. Explore some of those deficiencies that we just talked about and take some time to go to God in prayer. Confessing those sins, confessing those places of inadequacy, and inviting and asking Jesus to bring healing in those areas of your life. Join me in prayer and then we'll, we'll close out with some more singing to the Lord in worship. Lord, as we round out this sermon series, may we take to heart the words that you have spoken to these churches 2,000 years ago. May we find places where we can live into and lean into the commendations, the positive things that you had to say of the church, that those things would be true of us here in Swissvale and Pittsburgh. And Lord, any of those critiques that apply, may we take them 
May we take them at face value. May we own them. Lay them before you. Acknowledging that we are not perfect. But Lord, you don't ask, and you, you kind of do ask for perfection, but that it's, it's not by our own effort that you ask for perfection, but you perfect us through the person of Jesus Christ. And so may we continue to put ourselves at the mercy of Christ, receive the grace that you have given us through his life, death, and resurrection, and allow you to re, uh, restore us, reinvigorate us, kind of rehabilitate us from the inside out. Lord, would you make those steps in our lives this very day? In Jesus' name, amen.